This is Fresh Air. I'm David Bean Cooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey, sitting in for Terry Gross. The HBO comedy series Barry, about a hitman who pursues an acting career, is nominated for six Emmys this year, including Outstanding Comedy Series. Today, we feature interviews with Bill Hader, who stars in it and co-created, co-writes, and is one of its directors, and with Henry Winkler, who co-stars in the series. Both of them have won Emmys for their respective lead and supporting roles and are nominated again this year. Here's a scene from the recently completed third season, which got increasingly unpredictable, dark, and impressively original. Barry, played by Hader, is in a store shopping for clothes, while at the same time trying to dictate into his iPhone an apologetic email to his girlfriend Sally. As he recites his stiffly composed message, we hear the piped-in shopping mall music and see the alarmed expressions of the other shoppers as they hear the content of Barry's email. Barry, after all, is guilty of doing some pretty creepy things. Hey Sally, exclamation point. I just wanted to say I appreciate you for calling me out for being a quote, violent ass end quote. I am sorry for all the I put you through over the past couple of weeks. Parentheses, yelling at you at work, comma, offering to break into your boss's house, comma, take sleeping pictures of her, etc., etc. In parentheses, wincing emoji. Bill Hader became famous as a performer and writer on Saturday Night Live. Terry talked with Hader in 2019 after the first season of Barry. Barry is a Marine who has suffered from depression and PTSD ever since returning from Afghanistan. He's become a hitman, using his deadly skills to kill people for hire. As Barry pursues his latest target, he follows him to an acting class. Barry ends up being dragged up on stage for an acting exercise and oddly enjoys it. In this scene from season one, Barry asks the acting teacher, Gene Cousinow, if he can join the class. Cousinow is played by Henry Winkler. Hey, Ms. Cousinow, uh, I was wondering, um, do you think I was good enough to be in your class? No, Barry, I don't. What you did was dog I mean, really, really awful. Dumb acting, I call it. Do you know why? Because acting is truth. And I saw no truth. So here's my advice to you. You go back to whatever nook of the world you call home and you do whatever it is you're good at. Because this is not it. You want to know what I'm good at? I'm good at killing people. <laughs> yeah, when I got back from Afghanistan, I uh, was really depressed. You know, like I didn't leave my house for months and... Uh, this friend of my dad's, he's, uh, he's like an uncle to me. He, uh, he helped me out and he gave me a purpose. He told me that, that what I was good at over there could be useful here. And uh, it's a job, you know? Like, the money's good. And uh, these people I take out, like, they're, they're bad people. But lately, you know, I've, like, I'm not sleeping and... Uh, that depressed feelings back, you know? Like, like, I know there's more to me than that. 
maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's all I'm good at. I don't know. Anyway, forget it. Sorry to bother you. What's that from? What? Are you telling me that was an improvisation? Huh. Interesting. The story's nonsense, but there's something to work with. My class is not cheap. Well, it's not a problem. You paying cash? Yeah. You paying the dance? I can do that. Next class tomorrow, 2 p.m. We start on time. Absolutely. What's your last name again? Block. Barry Block. You paying in advance? Yeah. No, I know. Gene M. Cousinau. I look forward to this journey. Bill Hader, welcome back to Fresh Air. I love the series. Hi. Well, that clip kind of summarizes part of what the first season was about. Barry knowing that he's a good hitman, but truly wanting a different life. And he has trouble speaking the truth on stage. But when he speaks it off stage, like he did in that scene, people don't always believe him because it seems so preposterous. <laughs> um, and, and that's a kind of constant thing in the series that when people like act the truth, people don't necessarily want to hear it when they act the more, you know, stage version of the truth that's a distortion of the truth, people, like, give them accolades. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. I always find that's true, especially uh, in art in general. It's the kind of harsh reality of, of something. Um, you know, I think you could kind of a cynical way, well, it doesn't really sell and things like that, which might be true. But I think also what we... In the writer's room, when we talked about it, was, you know, Alec Berg, who co-created the show with me, we realized, you know, I, I think people just don't like hearing about it. <laughs> you know, people like a nice story. It's, it's a bummer. <laughs> it's a bummer. <laughs> yeah, we, that was the thing we kept saying. It was like, oh, that was a bummer. Yeah, that was like, it was a real bummer. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of times the, you know, in season two, the whole uh, Henry Winkler's character, the acting coach, Gene Cousineau, makes them... Uh, do a truth exercise, talk about your deepest truth of who made you who you are. And to be honest and real, that makes you an artist. And how, one, that's really hard to do, and two, do people even really want to hear that? Yeah. How did the idea of a hitman who wants to be an actor get started? Like, what was the germ of that idea? Uh, Alec Berg and I um, were kind of put together by our mutual agent, uh, this is back in 2014. And, oh, so you and, weren't uh, buddies? Like somebody like I knew him. Yeah, someone played matchmaker and it worked. <laughs> 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 yeah, but we 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 uh, we're in the same comedy circles and stuff like that. But we we thought, oh well, let's go and and uh, you know, I had this deal at HBO and and uh, to make a show, but I didn't know what the show was. And then uh, we would sit and we talked about one idea for a while. And uh, we realized that, you know, it was kind of an idea that didn't have any stakes to it. We realized, like, we had a great pilot episode, and then when we thought of what would be other episodes, we didn't have anything. Wait, <laughs> it was so, what was of, that first idea? Um, it was essentially me playing um, someone I grew up with um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was kind of the character. I was in a movie called Hot Rod. And and the character I played in Hot Rod, it was kind of like a, a version of that guy. And it was very much like a day-in-the-life kind of meandering thing of this kind of wayward guy in, in uh, Oklahoma. And, and um, 
it just was boring. <laughs> you know, like, I just was like, I can't really get into this. I mean, we have bits. There's comedy bits. But where's the emotion? Where's the story? And really, where are the stakes to it, you know? And so we kind of had this breakfast. I remember a bummer breakfast, right, where we both were like <laughs> kind of separately went, I don't think this idea works. It's kind of it doesn't really hold water. And I go, it should be stakes. And I remember he said, oh, you know, life and death. You know, that's the ultimate, right? Death, that, you know. And I just said, well, what if I was a hitman? And he went, ugh. I hate hitmen. And he said, hitman's like dog catcher. There's more in television and movies than there are in real life. You know, there's not hitman. What is that? You know, I go, but what if it was me? You know, and it's not a guy. It's not, you know, the kind of cool guy with two guns in his hands with the long tie. Like, what if we, you know, the the black tie and the suit, you know, what if we made it uh, real? And... We talked about that, and then I'm not, I'm not, I'm not joking. We suddenly both got fixated on the idea of him being an actor. I don't know why. I don't know where it came from. We just both started talking about him taking an acting class, and we, and I remember specifically Alec going, "Oh, Hitman wants to be an actor. That that's funny. That's good, you know." Uh, and then we started seeing these interesting correlations of the conflict within that of, you know, a hitman wants to be in the shadows, but an actor wants to be in the spotlight. A hitman wants to be anonymous, but actors want to be known. A hitman wants to suppress his emotions, where an actor wants to constantly be, you know, uh, harnessing their emotions and all these things. So it it was a a funny, it just seemed, you know, the acorn, the, the, the seed of the idea could, you know, give us a, a tree that, a you know, give us a lot of uh, interesting stories and uh, different branches and places to go off to. So I want to get back to the idea of, you know, acting as truth-telling, as telling some, like, emotional truth and drawing that emotional truth from deep within yourself. Um, So did you ever go through that kind of soul-searching as an actor? You didn't go to acting school, right? No, I went to Second City, L.A. I just, I learned, um, I just improv but I not not I never took an acting class really like the one that's in the show. So like what kinds of experiences or secondhand experiences are you basing that class on where it's all about like getting to the emotional truth and sometimes like the acting teacher will emotionally push one of the students to the edge to get them to the point where they're ready to like be emotionally naked on stage. Well, we, I mean, we went to acting classes and audited them and stood, sat in the back. Oh, as, as research for the series? As research for the series, yeah. And, so, and then at, at some point, Alec just had to go because some of the people would recognize me and it would be weird and what is he doing here? And and so Alec would kind of go by himself. But we saw in the pilot, there's a scene between Henry uh, Winkler, who plays Kusino, and Sarah Goldberg, uh, who plays Sally Reed. Um, One of the students. Where um, he... Uh, berates her into getting uh, the right emotional response, and we, um, Alex, saw that. He oh, really? Calling me, saying, "I just saw this thing where this guy just went after this actress hard to get her to this place, and then she started doing the scene, and she was really, you know, crying and so thankful for him for getting her there, you know, and all this stuff, and." Uh, he said it was very strange. Yeah, the, um, the acting teacher in the series, the Henry Winkler character, Henry Winkler basically says, 
to the acting student. You know what I call that? That's fake acting. And he's yeah. really like mean. But then, oh, yeah. but then she gives this like brilliant performance shit. afterwards. Yeah. yeah. But it was a great way of introducing the world of this for Barry as this guy who's kind of emotionally closed off of going, oh, I need someone to do that. For, I need that for some reason. I need someone to access an emotion that I, I'm too afraid to um, kind of look at. I know I need this on some level. The first time I interviewed you, I didn't know about this, but apparently when you were on Saturday Night Live, you had a lot of um, anxiety about performing live and even had like a panic attack, I think, while the show was on, while you were yeah on the air, I while had you were a panic doing the attack. bit playing Julian Assange. Yeah, I was doing playing Julian Assange had a panic attack. It was fun. Um, <laughs> can, can you describe now, what happened then? Ah, uh, yeah, I was doing a Julian Assange. Uh, it was Jeff Bridges hosting, and I don't know what happened, but I suddenly went. I can't breathe. It felt like it just felt like I was dying. I just that's the only way I could describe it. It just the panic. Uh, I think it was a bit of exhaustion and and uh, also um, I've I'm a very naturally anxious person, you know. I'm always, and in some ways it's good because when I'm directing a thing, I'm eight steps ahead of things and I'm trying to make sure things are in order and things like that. You know, we talk about the things that we wish we could change in ourselves, and you know, I I very very anxious and it could kind of make me. Um, slightly isolated or not being in the moment in a thing. And on Saturday Night Live, I felt like the majority of my time there, especially in the first half of it at least, um, I wasn't in the moment. I was very, very, very nervous. Um, heart palpitations, sweating, I would get dizzy. I would, you know, I remember once it got to the point where I became completely convinced that either a piece of equipment was going to fall on me <laughs> or that someone was going to storm the stage. Someone, some of the audience was going to run up on stage. Well, that seemed like, like, like unusual yeah. things to worry about. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it got I thought, crazy. I thought you'd it got be a worrying little... about, you know, like, I'm going to forget my lines. I didn't know. No, and you forget your about... lines and yeah. things. It, it went from that to that. So once I started getting into these other things, and I, um, you know, I started doing like TM and, um, you know, you take, you know, medication, you go to a therapist, you know, I really. You know, uh, exercise, changing my diet. I mean, all these things to try to get this under control, and um, and and it, you know, it's just it's just acknowledging it. You know, you just kind of go, "That's not happening." You know, relax. But um, I think it got to a really bad place, and I think in Barry, it's not so much the uh, anxiety of it; it was more of. Um, this idea that I was naturally good at Im impressions and I was telling Alec Berg this when we were just starting writing I go you know I was always good at impressions but I, what I always wanted to do was write and direct I moved out to Los Angeles 20 years ago to be a writer director and I was a production assistant and I did all these things and you know was a crew guy forever and then kind of happened you know in a fluky way got on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> you know, Megan Mullally saw me in a show I got on Saturday Night Live, and I was uh, not prepared for it. And I was saying it's so ironic that all the things I was writing and directing uh, were never really, all the short films I made were never very that, that good, and the scripts I was writing, was they were not good. I had a lot to learn, but I could kind of just do impressions. 
And the irony was that the show I did the impressions on, it was like slowly destroying me because of the anxiety of having to perform in front of a bunch of, uh, in front of the nation. You know, I just, I just, it's, I still get, I hosted a year ago and I was a wreck. And, uh, and I told Alec this and he went, I think that, I think that's the show. It's about a guy who thinks, you know, the thing he's naturally good at is destroying him, but the thing he wants to do, he's not very good at. <laughs> you know? And he goes, well, that's an emotion. You understand. We can write that. So I have to ask you about your eyes. On Saturday Night Live, you always, you have very big eyes, and you're one of those people who can, like, raise one eyebrow. Um, yeah. And on Saturday Night Live, you always used your eyes great for comic effect. On Barry... Staring into your eyes, like when I look at your eyes on Barry, like sometimes your eyes are saying like thousand-yard stare, the stare of a soldier who's seen combat too long. Sometimes it's the stare of someone with just like so much existential dread. And sometimes it's the stare of somebody who has just become overtaken by rage and anger. And I wonder if you think about your eyes at all or whether they, it just kind of happens that your eyes communicate yeah. so much. Yeah, I don't think about it at all. Um, thanks for saying that. That's a nice compliment. It's funny you say that because I always, uh, there's a funny thing that happened with one of our editors, uh, Kyle Ryder, where we were watching episode four, and I just went, do I have any other facial expressions? <laughs> I just have the same facial expression this whole show. I just look angry. And he he played this clip, and it's me, and it's, me, he plays the take, I do the take, and then you hear our director of that episode, Liza Johnson, going, that was great, Bill, do you want to do another one? And I go, no, I'm good, I think we got it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and he, he's like, do, you know, do, do another take, man. <laughs> Did you? No, no, I would always do, I always do like two takes. I'm like, did I say everything right? Are we good? Okay, let's move on. Is that, is that because you want to save time and money and get everything made on yeah, time? And yeah, yeah, I just, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm not precious. I'm weirdly, I like very few, in the edit, I like fewer choices. I kind of like having to be forced to make a decision as opposed to, you know, when I was in my early 20s, these ideas, I thought it was so romantic that Stanley Kubrick would shoot 150 takes. <laughs> And now I'm like, that's crazy. <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> that makes it now that I've done it. I'm like, wait, that's that's insane. You know, you don't need to do that. Just watching the takes is going to take forever. Yeah, but it doesn't. They, I think there's this thing of the directors want actors to stop acting. So they they pummel them to death with a lot of takes. And I just feel like that's someone who's not really respecting an actor and also someone that all you have to say is, hey, could you try this? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> could you do less? Bill Hader, it's been great to talk with you again. I regret that our time is up. Thank you so yeah. much for coming back to Fresh Thank Air. Thank you. This is a, a giant, uh, uh, this is a huge honor. Bill Hader speaking to Terry Gross in 2019. The co-creator and star of HBO's Barry is up for Emmys this year as both actor and director, and Barry itself is nominated for Outstanding Comedy Series. After a break, we'll hear from another of the show's Emmy nominees and former winners, supporting actor Henry Winkler. And Justin Chang reviews Nope, the new movie from Jordan Peele. I'm David B. and Cooley, and this is Fresh Air.
This message comes from NPR sponsor, the John Templeton Foundation, who believes in advancing humanity's understanding of the profound questions in life, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder since 1987. The John Templeton Foundation is proud to support leading scientists, philosophers, and theologians from around the world. Learn about the latest discoveries related to black holes, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org. Henry Winkler became famous 46 years ago for his role on the ABC sitcom Happy Days as Arthur Fonzarelli, a.k.a. The Fonz. Since then, he's been in movies and TV shows, including recurring roles in Parks and Recreation and Arrested Development. He won an Emmy in 2018 and is nominated again this year for his supporting role in HBO's Barry. In one of the most recent season three episodes of Barry, Henry Winkler is showcased as the acting teacher, recording a video ad for an online and in-theaters masterclass. And he's talking about masks. Hello, I'm Gene Cousinow, and I'm a mask collector. Wait a minute, isn't this supposed to be a masterclass in acting given by the great performer Gene Cousinow? You're saying to your laptop or mobile device, and yes, it is, don't fret it. And by the end of this class, hopefully, you're going to be a mask collector too, God willing. Let me give you an example of my favorite masks. Hamlet. To be or not to be? Is that the question? Stanley Kowalski. Stella! Get down here! Get down here! I want to eat! A cop in Serpico. Hey, Serpy, are you going against us? You see, these are not literal masks. There are roles that you're going to play in this class, and they are going to change your life. When the HBO comedy series began, Barry, played by Bill Hader, had come to Gene's acting class to fulfill a hitman contract and kill one of the students. But Barry was so intrigued by the teacher and one of his classmates that he decided to stay and try to pursue acting and change his life. Terry Gross spoke with Henry Winkler in 2019. In this scene from the first season, during an acting class exercise, Barry tells the story of the first time he shot and killed someone in Afghanistan. Gene is moved by Barry's story and tries to convince Barry to tell the Afghanistan story on stage. Here's Henry Winkler as Gene Cousinow and Bill Hader as Barry. Mr. Cousinow, um, I don't really have to tell the story I told yesterday in front of uh, an audience, do I? Of course not. Oh, good. Thank you. No, that version is just the beginning. See, during rehearsal, and this is just my instinct, you're going to find more complicated up details. Those we have to hear. Right, but you know, you said that this is a story that um, has to define mm-hmm. us, and I just, I don't think that's the person that I am. Barry, you're justifiably nervous, yeah. but I will not hear a word about switching it out one iota for something less compelling. You, sir, are doing Afghanistan. See, I want to do a story about meeting you. Go on. Yeah, you know, being in this class and, and uh, seeing you teach and... Uh, so you want to tell the story of meeting me? Yeah. I'll allow it. Oh, good. That's great. That's great. I, I think it'll be way better than Afghanistan. I can be as involved as you need me to be in order to craft this piece, or I can stay on the sidelines. Okay. I totally understand. Either way is fine. Okay, I don't think but I need who to... who would know more about me than me? That's a good point, but I don't think you need to be involved at all. You know, I, I was there, so I remember. I've got scrapbooks. Oh, cool. If you need them. Hmm. I've got diaries. I've got pictures. I've got tapes, Barry. I have got a lot of tapes. 
I think I'm good, Mr. Cousineau. Thank you. <laughs> Henry Winkler, welcome to Fresh Air. You're terrific in this role. I'm so glad to have you, you on our show. So um, your character, Gene, is so intent on getting truthful performances from his students and have them dig deep into their souls. But he's also so narcissistic and wrapped up in the mystique he's tried to create around himself in this little class. This must have made you think a lot about some of the best and worst acting teachers you had now that you're playing an acting teacher. Have you kind of gone back to look at your past and your acting teachers? I have. Uh, I've had about 14 teachers from Emerson College to Yale uh, Drama School uh, just in between those um, seven years. And what was amazing is that some of them were inspirational. Some of them were mean. Some of them lost their way. And some of them had nothing to say. What is one of the worst acting exercises you were obligated to do when you were a student? I did uh, an exercise with one of my favorite teachers. His name was Bobby Lewis. He was a member of the group theater. Um, Bobby Lewis uh, had us pick a painting, pick a character in the painting, get some element of clothing uh, that represented that character, take the pose, step out of the pose, and create who you thought that person was. I am so dyslexic. I got my piece of uh, costume. I struck my pose. I stood there and he said, is there any reason you are mirror opposite to what is in the painting? I said, no, I'm not. I, there's no reason at all. And I just turned around and immediately struck the pose in the other direction. And he started to cry. He said, you're making a mockery of my work. And I had no idea what he was talking about. Wow, that seems really harsh. Except that he was the man, to be honest, most of what I know, most of what I use in my well of education uh, comes from the great Bobby Lewis. So um, do you attribute this like a mirror reverse thing that you were doing to the dyslexia? I do. I had no idea. And I, of course, had no sense of self at that time. I was an unrefrigerated um, bowl of jello just before it congeals. I just thought, well, that's it. My career is over. My, they're going to kick me out of school. So is that an example of bad teaching when you kind of ruin somebody's when you lower somebody's self-esteem even lower than it already was, is that, <laughs> is that helpful? You know what? I, I think a lot of acting teachers, um, they, they talk about breaking bad habits. They talk about breaking you down. And I totally get that. But I have also – I've taught four classes in my life. And I think you can get an actor to move off their position or her position – without making them feel like um, poop from a whale at the bottom of the ocean. And by the way, you didn't know you had dyslexia at the time. I did not until I was 31. And you find out, found out at the age of 31 because... Yes, after my stepson was tested because he was so verbal and he is so smart, and, but he couldn't do um, reports, he couldn't write, uh, he couldn't organize his thoughts. And when we had him tested, everything that they said about 
Jed was true about me. And I realized, oh, I'm not a stupid dog. I actually have something with a name. How was that helpful to have a diagnosis? The first thing, I got very angry. Because all of that, all of the arguments in my house with the short Germans who were my parents were for naught. All of the uh, grounding was for naught. You mean punishment grounded, like you're grounded. Yes, yes. Like I couldn't go to the dance on Friday night. Because your grades weren't good? I couldn't watch. My grades were horrible. I am in the bottom 3% academically in America. That is um, calculated. And then I went from all of that anger to I now understand possibly if I didn't fight through my dyslexia, I would not be sitting at this microphone chatting with you. Right. So you really had to work hard to work through the dyslexia so you could learn your parts. I mean, if reading is hard, how are you going to memorize a part? Well, memorizing is different from the reading. The reading was is still difficult for me. I, uh, when we did Happy Days, I embarrassed myself for 10 years reading around that table with the producers, the other actors, the director, the, all of the department heads. On Monday morning, we read the scripts. I stumbled over every word. I was completely embarrassed. Memorizing, if it's written well, my brain is then able to um, suck it up like a vacuum cleaner. I want to talk a little bit about Happy Days. How would you describe the series and your character to people too young to have seen it? It was a, a, a story about a family, about the trials and tribulations of living together. Uh, it was set in the 50s where the music was great. And my character was a tough, uh, a tough guy who rode a motorcycle, wore a leather jacket, and had a very soft heart. Your character exuded How confidence. Did I do? Uh, uh, good, good. I, I don't Thank think you. you got to the more goofy parts of the character. <laughs> ah. um, what, would, what would that be? Uh, that In your mind. Okay, that he thought he was like it. You know, that he was just like the the greatest, most handsome. Well, people treated most, him like that. Right. I don't know that he thought he was because when he, you know, the first thing I said to the producers when they called me on my birthday in 1973 and said, would you like to play this part? I said, hey, when he takes the leather jacket off, when he takes his jacket off, who does he have to be cool for in his apartment? If you let me show the other side, it would be my pleasure to play this character. Well, did you really, like, tell them who the character needed to be before you accepted the part? No. Okay. Not you. I I would not tell Gary Marshall, uh, rest his soul, uh, who I thought he had to be. But I put the character on, and then they let me sew it onto my being. Henry Winkler speaking to Terry Gross in 2019. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Zoom. Half a million businesses connect using Zoom, a single platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video. Zoom enables real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom's secure and reliable platform is easy to manage, use, and customize for large enterprises, small businesses, and individuals alike. Zoom, how the world connects. 
Let's get back to Terry's 2019 interview with Henry Winkler, a supporting actor Emmy winner for his role as acting teacher Gene Cousinow on the HBO comedy series Barry. He's been nominated again this year. So I want to ask you about your parents. I don't know if they're still alive or not. So I don't They know are what, not. They're not. Okay, so you're... No. Your parents were German immigrants. They came... They were. ...here in 1939. Um, yes, they did. So... Um, and and Through you're Ellis Jewish, Island. so it's good they I came am. when they did. I, I, I think That's the door true, closed right, not be right behind here. them. Yeah. Um, so uh, what? What? How did they know to to leave? I always wonder how people knew. know the time is right and they'd better. Get My out. father knew that it was time. He got a six week visa from Germany to come and do work in New York, but was expected to come right back. I have told this story that uh, he took his mother's jewelry, bought a box of chocolate, melted the chocolate down, uh, put the pieces of jewelry in the in the chocolate box, melted the uh, poured the chocolate over the jewelry, put the box under his arm. So when uh, he was stopped by the Nazis and they said, "Are you taking anything of value out of Germany?" He said, "No. You can open every bag. We've got nothing." And the jewelry that he encased in chocolate, he sold when he came out of Ellis Island into New York and was able to start a new, a new life here slowly but surely. I have the, the actual letters from the government uh, each time my father requested to stay a little longer and they would say yes and – I was born, and thank God, because I love our country. This is the U.S. government giving him permission to stay? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And you had an uncle who stayed behind a little longer and couldn't get out, I did. right? Uh, uncle Helmut. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was supposed to escape with a, a submarine that um, – uh, that was supposed – you know, they had a meeting place and they – a lot of friends were going to get on this submarine and get out. And he said, no, no, no. I'm just going to stay one more day. It will be fine. I'm having a white dinner jacket made at the tailor and um, I, I would I, – I think I can wait one more day and I'll be OK. And he was taken to Auschwitz. And I just did a show called Better Late Than Never where I traveled around the world and I saw the plaque in the street that commemorated my uncle and every other Jew that was taken from Berlin. Um, and it said uh, his uh, Helmut Winkler, his date of birth, when he lived in the building the plaque was in front of and uh, what year he was taken to Auschwitz. So was it was your family religious? Were you were you raised? My family mm -hmm. was religious. They are certainly more religious than I am. Mm -hmm. uh, I am proud of my religion. Uh, my children were all bat and bar mitzvahed, but uh, I, I'm not as traditional or keeping the tradition uh, as my parents were. We we. Um, said the prayer over the bread and the wine and the candles on Friday night. We had uh, Shabbos dinner. Uh, my parents went to temple every week. Um, they, my father was president of the temple. Do you think that the Holocaust made your parents feel more strongly about being observant? 
I don't have an answer to that question. Okay. I didn't like them so much, I didn't pay attention a lot. You didn't like your parents? I, I Is that what you're saying? That's right. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. Um, uh, now, certainly now I've, I've mellowed, but a lot of my life was fueled by the fury of these two people who were so um, non-present uh, 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 on who I was um, on the earth. Do you think that your parents having gotten out um, just in time, your uncle having died in Auschwitz, yeah. you know, the knowledge of what happened to everybody, who's, all the Jews who stayed behind in Germany. Yes, yes. Do you th- think that that made your father more disappointed in you and in, in in your difficulties reading and everything? Because it's like, what do you have to complain about? Why can't you be better? Look what happened in Germany. Like, you know what? I don't know if that is true. Listen, I figure the trauma of leaving your country, losing your family, um, the Holocaust of what was happening in the world at that moment certainly affected the way they were. Mm-hmm. But on the education part, the being lazy, uh, the not living up to my potential, uh, being a dumme Hund, uh, which is dumb dog, um, I think that was in his DNA. I think that they brought that um, with them with or without a war. So in addition to your acting, you also have co-authored a series of novels about a boy yes. named Hank who yeah. has – dyslexia, as do you. And it's in a special typeface, which I thought was really interesting. I didn't know there was a typeface for dyslexic people. You know what? There wasn't. Oh. Uh, And a a dad in Holland uh, came up with it, and the publisher, Penguin Putnam, chose the typeface. It was the first time it was ever used in America. And I have to say I am so proud because I could have used it. It just makes uh, the eye track so much more easily across the page. Yeah, what makes it the, different? Um, uh, the, the ascending line of the T, the descending line of the G, the C is um, – there's a, a, a different uh, distance in the in – the, uh, in the opening of the C, they are more weighted at the bottom of the letter, so they sit more comfortably on the line so that they don't float. There are so many things. He was a uh, – he is a graphic designer, and he's dyslexic. His children are dyslexic, and um, when you look at the novel itself, when you look at the page, you go, I get it. It's just so much more friendly. Henry Winkler, it's just been great to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Henry Winkler of HBO's Barry, speaking to Terry Gross in 2019. Like the show's star and co-creator, Bill Hader, Henry Winkler has won an Emmy for his role and is nominated again this year. Coming up, film critic Justin Chang reviews Nope, the new movie written and directed by Jordan Peele. This is Fresh Air. After tapping into the horrors lurking beneath the surface of American life in Get Out and Us, writer and director Jordan Peele ventures into alien sci-fi territory with his new thriller titled Nope. 
The movie, which opens in theaters this week, stars Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer as siblings who witness what may be an extraterrestrial visitor to the California desert. Our film critic, Justin Chang, has this review. The title of Jordan Peele's smart and subversive new thriller, Nope, is muttered a lot by the characters on screen, usually in frightened response to the very big, very bad thing they see flying overhead. This is Peele's version of a UFO thriller, his winking homage to classic alien invader stories like War of the Worlds and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But as you'd expect from the writer-director of Get Out and Us, which used the horror genre to tell stories about racism and class oppression, Nope also has something topical on its mind, and figuring out what that something is is part of the fun. For now, let's just say it has something to do with movies themselves. The story takes place in the wide-open desert spaces of Agua Dulce, which lies about 50 miles north of Los Angeles and is a popular Hollywood filming location. The two protagonists are a sibling duo who own a ranch and also work as horse wranglers on movie and TV sets. Daniel Kaluuya plays the stoic, taciturn brother, Otis Haywood Jr., who goes by O.J. in one of the script's more deadpan asides. By contrast, his sister, M, played by a terrific Kiki Palmer, is full of warmth and energy. In this scene, she and her brother are wrangling a horse on a set, and M explains the history of their family business. Did you know that the very first assembly of photographs to create a motion picture was a two-second clip of a black man on a horse? And that man is my great-great-grandfather. Great. There's another great-grandfather. But that's why back at the Haywood Ranch, as the only black-owned horse trainers in Hollywood, we like to say since the moment pictures could move, we had skin in the game. Another major character here is Jupe Park played by Stephen Yun, who runs a kitschy Old West-themed amusement park in Agua Dolce, near the Haywoods Ranch. Jupe was once a child actor on a mid-90s family sitcom built around a chimpanzee, until the show was cancelled after a gruesome onset tragedy. Between that and the horse wrangling, Peel is clearly interrogating Hollywood's long history of animal-related accidents and abuses. What any of this has to do with a possible alien invasion might seem mystifying at first, but Peel brings the connection gradually into focus. Before long, that flying saucer is peeking out from behind the clouds and zipping over the desert landscape, triggering power outages and raining down all kinds of misery. But Peel smartly keeps us from getting a really good look at it early on. He's learned the crucial lesson of Steven Spielberg's Jaws, Namely, that the less we see of the monster early on, the scarier and more effective the build-up will be. And like Jaws, Nope becomes a double-edged chase thriller, in which the saucer soaring overhead is both hunting and being hunted by the people scurrying on the ground below. But the movie also plays like a western, with its horses and ranches, and finally its story of a ragtag crew coming together to mount one last stand against a monstrous threat. The other Spielberg classic that Peel leans on heavily here is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Not unlike Richard Dreyfuss's character in that movie, O.J. and M, along with two unlikely allies, well played by Brandon Perea and Michael Wincott, become obsessed with their otherworldly visitors. 
But they don't just want to find out the truth. They're hell-bent on capturing visual evidence that what they're seeing is real. It's here that Nope becomes a cautionary tale of sorts, in a way that dovetails with Peel's larger critique of Hollywood. He's questioning our sometimes mindless attraction to spectacle, whether we chance upon it in real life or in a big-budget summer movie like this one. Not everything in Nope works. After a beautifully controlled build-up and a genuinely thrilling midsection, the movie's third act sputters a bit as Peel tries to tie all his grand ideas together. But it's a thrill to see a big-budget summer movie that actually has ideas. And Peel's confidence as a filmmaker seems to grow with every movie. One scene, in which O.J. rides a horse with the you-know-what nipping at his heels, brings to mind nothing so much as the famous Cary Grant vs. Crop Duster sequence in Hitchcock's North by Northwest. In Get Out and Us, Peel plunged us into shadowy funhouses of horror. In Nope, he has the skill to let terror take hold in broad daylight. And no less than his petrified characters, you might find it awfully hard to look away. Justin Chang is film critic for the LA Times. Better Call Saul, the AMC prequel to Breaking Bad, has only four episodes left before winding up the story of how Jimmy McGill became Saul Goodman, a sleazy, fast-talking lawyer representing slip-and-fall patients and drug lords. On Monday's show, we talk with Bob Odenkirk, the star of Better Call Saul, and the show's co-creator and showrunner, Peter Gould. Hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Sherrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Tina Calake. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saban, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm David Bean Coolidge.